Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 77, The World is Young. This episode contains part three of my discussion with fellow Young Earth creationists Cowboy Bob Sorensen and Nathan Schumacher. To catch you up with where we left off, a couple episodes ago in part one, we got to know Bob and Nathan a little bit better. Uh, We got to know uh, why it is that they're passionate about this subject, and we spent a while discussing what it is that our concern really is with old Earth creationism and uh, theistic evolution. And that concern is not merely their desire, uh, the proponents of those positions, desire to reconcile general revelation with um, uh, special revelation or, or vice versa versa, uh, that's something that we have to do as well. Rather, our concern is with um, their subjecting uh, the interpretation of both those spheres of evidence to extra-biblical authorities like uniformitarianism, naturalism, and others. Um, And then in part two of our discussion, which I published last week, we discussed when it is that the scientific data can help us to better understand what the Bible says. Uh, We talked about the historical grammatical uh, approach to hermeneutics um, and how when we apply that to the specific genre of literature that the book of Genesis appears to be, which is historical, rather than, say, poetic or apocalyptic, as in the case of uh, the Olivet Discourse in Revelation, for example, when we do this we uh, and when we recognize the historical genre that Genesis appears to be, uh, we have good biblical reason to believe that... um, that that were to take the days of creation as normal 24-hour days, particularly in light of the fact that the genealogies uh, later in those early chapters of Genesis appear to be simple, straightforward uh, historical narrative, and some of the same words that are used there are used in um, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And then I handed the proverbial microphone over to Cowboy Bob Sorensen and asked him uh, for some of the frustrating experiences that he's had with old earth creationists and theistic evolutionists and atheists. And then we gave him some time to uh, explain for us many of the logical fallacies he's encountered in the uh, in the uh, context of the debate between old earth creationism and young earth creationism and atheism and theistic evolutionism and everything. Uh, and it was at that point that we uh, then turned to Nathan Um, to get into some more specific scientific objections to uh, young earth creationism. So let's go ahead and dive right back into that conversation. But I, but I want to talk about some specific challenges now that we've talked at length about logical fallacies and stuff. I want to talk about some specific challenges to special creation and young earth. And, and because I know that uh, Nathan has a number of thoughts to share on this topic, I'll be directing these questions to uh, to you, Nathan. But Bob, feel, feel free to follow up to any of them if you have some thoughts. Um, so, so let's first look at distant starlight. Uh, while I find almost none of the ev- evidence allegedly in favor of an old u- universe persuasive, I will admit to people that distant starlight does seem to pose somewhat of a challenge to our view, and, and I'm personally not yet 100% confident of any of the um, 
uh, attempted young Earth answers to the challenge. So, Nathan, doesn't distant starlight prove that the universe is billions of years old? Um, yeah, something you said there uh, caught my attention that, that I hadn't seen before is that um, you know, you're know you not yet 100% confident of any of the young Earth answers. Well, I'd say I'm not either, and I'd say... According to the things I've read from young Earth creationists, I don't think that they are either. Hmm. And but, but see, I don't see that as a problem because we're not to put our faith in theories, are we? Right. But we're to put our faith in the in the Word of God. And there are going to be some things that we don't understand, but we have to take by faith. Uh, so um, that that's one thing that I, I just noticed there. Now, now a lot of people see this issue as the silver bullet against young Earth creationism. Right. Look, you know if. If I just put this one out there, that'll just knock your whole foundation out from under you, and you won't be able to believe in a young Earth anymore. <clears throat> but really, it's only a problem if you apply uniformitarian assumptions to the data. And here are a few of those assumptions. Here, I'm going to list them. Number one, the speed of light has always traveled at the same rate in the past as it does now. Number two, now, by the way, some of these assumptions might be more justified than others. Sure, um, sure. I think we're going to see one of them has been just obliterated, but most people don't understand that. Um, <clears throat> number two, our current distance from the stars is the same now as it was at every time in the past. Number three, every location in the universe has always experienced time at the same rate as another location. Mm. By the way, people that make that assumption without realizing they make that assumption without realizing that 20th century science itself has demolished its foundation. And that's the one I was referring to. Uh, and there's a really interesting theory uh, about uh, time dilation that Chris, you know, we've, we've discussed uh, amongst ourselves, uh, Russell Humphrey's theory. And I'll get to that one again. But uh, fourth, the universe is old enough for the light to travel the distance from the star to the earth at the present rate. And you might say, well, duh, of course it's old enough because we're seeing the starlight. But in saying that, you would be exposing your naturalistic assumption that in order to get the starlight to us, God couldn't or wouldn't have used means other than those we see in operation today. That's, that's actually naturalism and uniformitarianism. Mm. So kind of like I said earlier, uh, young Earth creation scientists have discussed many fascinating theories over the years regarding starlight. And I had sort of alluded to this one by Russell Humphreys. Uh, the book Starlight and Time is, is just kind of a, um, I don't, I don't want to say dissertation or something, but it almost is kind of written like a, a scientific paper hmm. on, on this theory of his. And it's, it's kind of, it, I found it extremely fascinating. Um, the basic idea is that we know time is not constant. Gravitation and possibly other factors distort it so that one location experiences it at a different rate than another location. And this is something that we've tested. We know that it actually occurs. Right. Uh, but, but every theory has its problems. And this is kind of just bringing it full circle to what I said at the beginning. Uh, even the current popular naturalistic Big Bang theory has problems of its own. Uh, Young Earth creation scientists do work with theories, but for the most part, they don't put their faith in those theories. So the fact that they are not 100% convinced, you know, that doesn't bother them because their faith is in the unchanging Word of God, not in scientific theories that might be popular today, but may be proven false tomorrow. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and a, you know, I just want to point out that the kinds of, um, you know, I think you mentioned one or two possible um, uh, uh, explanations to, to one or two of the assumptions which may be false. These are only a couple of the possible explanations that might be, uh, that are being explored as, as being a possible solution to this uh, alleged problem. And, um, you know, I, I do want to be careful to admit that I think that there are probably some explanations that are worse than others. I mean, I don't, I don't want to assume that you guys are in agreement with me on, um, take for example, uh, light created in transit. I don't think that's a good uh, explanation at all because I think that as other people have pointed out, um, light isn't merely uh, light; it's also a record of, of events. And uh, you know, the idea that God that, that light was created in transit suggests to me that events are recorded as having taken place, which did not, in fact, take place. So, I mean, I, I think that this is one example of a few that are probably worse explanations than others. But the point is, there are a host of these possible explanations that are being explored, are being tested, um, and the fact that we aren't 100% comfortable with any of them, I think is actually a good thing because it, uh, number one, demonstrates our reliance and our uh, trust in the authority of Scripture. But number two, it, rec- it, 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 it demonstrates that we recognize the, the scientific track record of scientists, which is that they're often wrong mm-hmm. and have to go back and change their theories later. Um, yeah. We're not being right. dogmatic about science. And Dr. Lyle, we mentioned earlier, he pretty much said what you just said. He doesn't like this light and transit thing. It's, uh, it's dishonest. That's right. Yeah. And and, and I, I think it's important that people hear us say that because I think that a lot of people get the impression that we latch on to really ridiculous ideas in the hope of rescuing our young earth creationism. But no, we're just as, uh, some of us anyway, I think a lot of us are just as uh, self-critical as others. And we want to we want to hold views that are just as uh, evidential as others. Um so no, we're not we're not at all trying to latch onto ridiculous theories uh, to hold a, to hold a view. We're we're examining them and we're being critical of them and we're rejecting the ones that we find out don't work. But also, if I could mention that um, now this this isn't to say that that is a valid view, the, the starlight in transit. But I would caution all of us. Um, there there are arguments that well, let me just put it this way. Uh, Adam was created, trees were created, um, with the appearance that they were a certain age. I mean, let's, let's say Adam was looked like he was about 30 years old when he was created, but he was only, you know, less than a day old in reality. So it can be deceiving to say that something looks old, uh, I should just say appearances can be deceiving. So that's just one caution uh, to, to throw in there. Uh, but... But that's not to say I'm disagreeing with you, Chris. I, I also think that that theory, um, if it would could be shown to be valid, would, would really have to. We'd have to take a closer look at that one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. And and you know, just just to kind of demonstrate that we are thinking through this. I I know you don't want to argue, and and you're not arguing with me. But just to sort of counter uh, what it is that you just said, I would point out that while Adam may have been created with the appearance of uh, of age. I don't necessarily agree that he was created with the appearance of uh, history. And what I mean by that is while he might have been able, been created fully uh, fully mature, I doubt that he was created with a scar. Because while being fully matured might suggest age, uh, it doesn't necessarily suggest uh, – it isn't explicitly 
or, or directly an evidence of history, whereas a scar is by definition uh, the evidence of a past historical event. And, and so in a similar way, when we look at the idea of starlight created in transit, my concern with that approach, I'm not rejecting it outright, but my concern uh, with that approach is that if we've got light that contains a record of, say, a supernova, um, but that light was created in transit, then um, then it's then we don't know whether or not, in fact, the supernova has occurred. It, it's a record of, it's an alleged record of an event that may or may not have ever taken place. And so that, that's why I do. It, it deserves a, a little bit more criticism, I think, than, than yeah. perhaps. Yeah, that's a valid point. I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to say something that I like what's happening here that we're bringing up even among ourselves and doing what a lot of creationist scientists will do is just put something out there and discuss and say, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? And all of these things are not in conflict with scripture. They're just trying to further our understanding of it. And even if it uh, is all that necessary. Yeah, definitely. I, I think this is a good illustration of what creation scientists can do. Um, but I do want to move on to the next one. Um, now, like I said, distant starlight is what I personally consider to be the only um, uh, even remotely challenging uh, <laughs> argument against our view. But uh, but a lot of people think that radiometric dating um, of, of rocks is, is a challenge to young Earth creationism. Nathan, aren't we able to measure the life of rocks to millions of years based on radiometric dating of isotopes and stuff like that? Well, that certainly is what we've been led to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, each of those dating methods involves several steps. Um, the first step would be that we observe a process of radioactive decay taking place in the present. That's an important uh, little uh, phrase right there, in the present. Uh, second step is we measure the rate of that decay process. Uh, the third step would be we measure the amount of material in a sample that is a known product of the radioactive decay process. For example, we know that uranium-238 decays into lead-236 through a number of intermediate steps. And we know how fast that process occurs uh, through the uh, uh, observations. And they, they have a term that they call half-life uh, to measure the rate at which that takes place. Now, we measure the number of lead-236 atoms in a sample of volcanic rock. Uh, the scientist does that, and so far he's on solid the solid ground of operational science. Remember, just as I made correct observations and conclusions about the speed of Bob's car using the radar gun. Right. Uh, the fourth step now, we determine how old this rock actually is by taking the number of lead-236 atoms and calculating how long it takes to produce that amount using the presently known rate of the process. Mm. Time out. <laughs> With this step, are we doing science or are we doing history? And here, here are the uniformitarian assumptions we've made. And I'm going to um, reference a book that I think is extremely helpful in this regard. And these, these assumptions I've taken from John Morris in his book, The Young Earth. Now, the first assumption is that we accurately know the quantity of the parent isotope present in the material when it was formed. Second assumption, the rate of radioactive decay has always remained the same in the past as the rate we observe today. Third assumption, the entirety of the daughter isotope is a product of the decay process. 
In other words, none was present when the material was formed, mm. and none was added to the, you know, added or taken away during the time of the, the, the that the process occurred. Uh, by the way, do you think some lead two thirty six atoms would have been present on a newly formed Earth? <laughs> would they have been a part of God's original good creation? Very possibly. Uh, I think the yes, I, I agree. So <laughs> I think we've exposed that one. Um, okay. Fourth assumption, number four. The whole process has been going on long enough to produce the present amount of daughter material at its present rate. Well, studies have called these assumptions into serious question. And again, please see me for the references uh, for these studies. And there's, I, I have not only these, but I have a whole ton more I could refer you to. Um, <clears throat> samples of lava from the 1986 Mount St. Helens eruption were dated as old as 2.8 million years. <laughs> so... Again, 2.8 million years for rock that was in reality only 20 years old. Hmm, something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, second example. Lava flows from Sunset Crater in northern Arizona are known historically to be about 1,000 years old, yet the potassium-argon dating method yielded dates for these flows of over 200,000 years. Again, 200,000 years for rock that was in reality only 1,000 years old? And many more similar studies could be cited. I, I'm not just cherry picking. I'm not showing the, you know, the few among million results that were not accurate. Um, but it, I mean, if you don't believe me on that, please do some research for yourself. We, we don't have time to get into all that. Um, but but I could refer you to to several other studies that that have been done uh, if we had the time. But John Morris asks a very interesting question in his book, and I want to conclude uh, the answer to this question with that uh, w with his question he says if the assumptions don't work on those times when we can check them how can we be confident that they work on those occasions when we cannot not check them yeah yeah that's that's a very good question um I, i'm curious i'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit because it's just dawned on me. Uh, you know, right. one of the thoughts I've had, and I think people have raised this objection to, to these examples you've given of Mount St. Helens and the uh, and the uh, lava flow in Arizona. Um, is it possible that 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 the lava, um, when it originally came out, had already reflected some of this decay process? I mean, are, what are you assuming that lava? Uh, that came out of Mount St. Helens in this in this place in Arizona. Uh, is it your assumption that these are indicative of the kind of rocks that we have? What, what am I trying to get at? Am I, do you kind of get what I'm getting at? I, I guess the, the concern that I think some people are going to have is um, could, could that have could that lava already be 200,000 millions of years old or whatever? Does that make sense? Well, now I am not a scientist. I'm not a geologist, but from what I have read. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. From, from what I've read about uh, the nature of rocks and igneous rocks, and by the way, it is igneous rocks that they're dating using these radioisotope methods. You can't date a sedimentary rock. Um, it d doesn't work. Uh, igne igneous and some metamorphic rocks, and of course a scientist is going to be listening and they're going to correct me, which is, which is fine. Please do. <laughs> um, but let's see, your question was, could, could those rocks have already been old? Well, when the rock is in a molten form, mm. it's my understanding that that is the point at which they, the clock starts. Uh, 
I from see. a uh, geologic perspective there. Um, that, that resets the age of the clock. Or the, the the time when the clock starts. Does that make sense? That it, it, yeah, I think so. So you're saying that, you know, just to go back to your example of uranium-238 atoms decaying into lead-236 atoms, uh, that process of isotopic decay, if that's the proper term, is a process that begins um, after the uh, rock has hardened. Is that basically what you're saying? According to what I've read, and in theory, yes. There are a lot of other considerations, I'm sure, um, that I'm not aware of, and again, I'm I'm not trained. Um, I, I don't have a degree in any scientific field. I'm by uh, profession, I'm a pilot, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just interested in the in geology. I, I sometimes think I, I fly over these terrain features, and I look down, and I'm just fascinated at, at God's creation, uh, especially something like the Grand Canyon. Um, and I think if I weren't a pilot, I think I'd like to be a geologist. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Bob, we're going to get to one more in a second. Uh, we're going to go back to Nathan in a second. But did you have any thoughts on um, dating of rocks before we go to the last uh, thing that I wanted to challenge Nathan with? Whenever I'm involved in dating rocks, it's usually dinner and a movie. But I don't have anything scientific to add. <laughs> okay. All right, good. Um, well, so let's move on to the last one. What about the idea of a global flood, Nathan? Because I've often heard it said that there's no scientific evidence in support of a global flood, uh, which we would expect to see after such a global catastrophe. Now, by the way, I want to laugh when I even say that the idea that there's no scientific evidence in support of a global flood. But uh, why is the global flood so important to young Earth creation? And is it true that there's no scientific evidence that it actually happened? Hmm. Well, it's interesting that someone would say that that there's no sign. I know they say these things. There's no scientific evidence that you weren't looking for it. You know, your presuppositions preclude their you from even seeing the evidence for a global flood. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why young Earth creationists emphasize the global flood so strongly is that a catastrophic global flood, uh, as described in Genesis uh, six through nine would have destroyed the existing geological features and redeposited those sediments in new structures. Uh, It would lay down a series of new strata or layers filled with dead plants and animals, and those things would become fossilized. Mm. And interestingly, for the most part, we don't see evidence of things living within those layers. What we observe is evidence of lots (laughs) of dead things that were buried within those layers. Uh, But again, this is what a global flood would have done. Now, if a global flood were true, um, what would the geologic column of all the rock layers really be a record of? Well, how would you respond to that question, e- either of you? If, if, if a global flood were true, what would the, and you had all this massive water just kind of carving up the whole earth and redepositing it in layers of rock, what would that global flood be a record of? Bob, do you mind me answering that question? Because I, I was going to... Um, I was going to ask Nathan about something, uh, which is uh, – I was going to ask you about hydrologic sorting because to answer your question, what, what, what would the geologic column really be record of? Um, my understanding is, is that if you take a, a, a bucket of water or something like that and you mix in uh, a whole bunch of dirt, let's say that you've carved some sediment from one area and you've carved other sediment out of another area and you mix it all in this body of this bucket of water and you swish it around – as the uh, sediment uh, settles, and let's go ahead and throw some insects and stuff in there too, some different kinds of animals in there. Uh, as the 
as the sediments from these variety of sources settle within the water that has come to a standstill, it will settle in layers based on density. And of course, within that layer, those layers of density would be a record of all sorts of dead animals that you've thrown into it, uh, into it as well. And then of course we'd see certain things like animals that are better able to swim around in this, uh, in this catastrophic sea of water in this bucket would, would be more, would die closer to the top because they were able to swim around longer or something. Whereas less mobile animals or animals less suited to such an environment would have died closer to the bottom of this high, this uh, geologic column of dirt. I, I know that was a little bit of a convoluted answer, but is, is that kind of the answer you're looking for? Well, uh, you're getting there. Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, okay. L- let me ask the question again. When you did this, what kind of a container did you use? I, well, it doesn't really matter, but, um, when you did this experiment, um, the, the layering that you observed uh, of the sediment, um, what kind of um, <clears throat> what event were your observations a record of? The settling of uh, the sediments. Yeah, your experiment. Only your experiment that you oh. did. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's but um, <clears throat> it, it's a. It would be a record of the flood in this case, um, and it just seems so obvious to us. But but let me put it um, conversely in the the other way. What would this be not be evidence of? Well, it would not be evidence of um, millions and billions of years of Earth history before the flood. Right. So if this happened the way the Bible said, um, then that precludes some options that a lot of people aren't uh, uh, they want they are committed to those uh, options so that is why old earth advocates argue so strongly against the global flood because old earth creationism depends on modern geology and its uniformitarian assumptions mm-hmm. without without uniformitarianism you can't know anything about what or very little about what happened before the flood uh, now, there have been some scientists and theologians who don't see that it's possible from the text of Genesis to justify a local flood, but they still want to believe in an old earth. So they posited something that, that Bob has made reference to already, and that is the tranquil flood theory. Hmm. And the tranquil, tranquil flood theory says that the flood was global. The waters covered the whole earth, but they kind of came and went without disturbing it. Uh, and that would allow you to hold on to the geologic column as a record of billions of years of Earth history, while at the same time affirming the global nature of the flood. Now, I think anyone who has been in a flood of any kind would tell you that the term tranquil flood is an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, even on a small scale, floods are violent. They're powerfully destructive and hazardous to human and animal life. They would carve up the Earth and deposit new layers of, of Earth with dead plants and animals buried in them that become fossilized. Now, flood on a global scale that came and left the Earth just the way it found it, well, that would have involved a supernatural act of God, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. It would have been a miracle for God to, uh, you know, in order for you to have this global flood that comes and leaves without leaving any evidence of it having been there. Um, so, it's... I kind of have to laugh at it, but now with regard to a local flood, a number of of problems with that one. First, I would look at the historical record of Genesis 6 through 9. If you believe in a local flood, I just ask you to read chapter 7, verses 7 through 24, 
Uh, and this is the actual description of the flood event itself, not just the circumstances surrounding it. And I would just ask you, if God intended to communicate to us that the flood co covered the whole earth, how could he have said it any differently? Mm. Uh, second thing, Genesis 9, 12 through 17, which is the record of what happened after the flood when, when God made his covenant with Noah, um, twice in this passage, God refers to the all flesh that he destroyed in the flood that had just occurred and made a covenant not to destroy all flesh again in this way. Now, if you believe in a local flood, you have to explain how all flesh here really means only a representative number of all living creatures within the context of that local flooding event. Hmm. But if that were the case, then it appears that God has repeatedly broken the covenant that he made. Since local flooding events, the results of tsunamis and hurricanes, for instance, have destroyed masses of human and animal life throughout history. Uh, that might be a real long, convoluted way to explain something that would have been really easy to say some other way. But basically what it comes down to is uh, God promised not to destroy all flesh as he did in Genesis 6 through 9, in, in a flood that covered the whole earth. Well, if all flesh only means a representative number of all flesh, then as it is typically argued uh, by local flood advocates, then God has broken his promise because we have local flooding all the time. Mm -hmm. That kills representative numbers of uh, these kinds of things, and, and humans as well. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's the one uh, thing I would say there. And uh, thirdly, as recorded in uh, Genesis 6, verse 7, God stated his purpose for destroying men and beasts from the face of the earth as being his sorrow for having made them. So, in light of that purpose, why would God have destroyed only a representative number of men and a representative number of beasts? It, it's clear that God's intent was to wipe them all out, all men and all beasts, with the exception of the ones in the ark. Uh, and fourth, what would retain the wall, or excuse me, the water of a local flood to that locality? We read in chapter 7, verse 19, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. If the mountains were covered, what was retaining the water? Mm -hmm. Natu naturally speaking, water will level itself out, and the flood would not have been contained within that Mesopotamian region, even if it started there. So just like with the tranquil flood, we saw something that would require a supernatural act of God. Um, this would also be the same way. Imagine just a massive wall of water. that That's the boundary of the local flood, and God is restraining that water. Now... Can God do that kind of thing? Well, obviously, yes, he can. Um, but do we see evidence for that in the text or anywhere else? And I think the answer is no. Yeah. And finally, why all the trouble to build the ark if the flood was only local? God could have commanded Noah, his family, and the selected an animals to merely migrate out of the region that would have been flooded. Um, a lot of other questions could be asked about local floods. But the bottom line is, evidence points to a catastrophic, violent, worldwide flood, and that is a huge problem for the present standard notions of the geologic column and the billions of years associated with it. Yeah, I definitely agree. Bob, did you have any thoughts on uh, the question of the flood? Hey, Chris, I'm glad he's on our side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you make us a great point. <laughs> um, Thank you. 
No, I don't think I have anything more to add. I was waiting for this, uh, and he said this, which is pretty much that the water seeks its own level, and there's no point in it. God could have said to Noah, hey, pack your bags and move. Right. Oh, and then, of course, I mean, we're, we're going to turn back to Nathan in a minute, and one of the evidences that uh, he's going to be talking about will further support the idea of a flood, I think. But, but I mean, let, let's point out the numerous uh, fossils of sea, sea creatures that have been found on mountaintops and stuff like that. I mean, I said as I was a- asking Nathan the question that I, I want to laugh when I hear people say there's no evidence of a flood uh, because the evidence is everywhere. All you have to do is get rid of your uh, presupposition that billions of years are responsible for the geologic column and, and, and other things. And once you consider the possibility that, well, maybe a global flood did happen, um, and you consider what would that produce, you see you see evidence of that all over the planet. Oh, so, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Bob, before we switch, uh, shift gears, I think you did say that uh, there were some additional things that you wanted to say about these uh, things that Nathan has mentioned. Is that right? Um. Not specifically about what he said, but uh, first I want to mention my dreadful joke about dating rocks. That's an example of a fallacy of ambiguity because I <laughs> used one meaning of one word in a different way. Yeah. Um, also, nobody is entirely logical. That lead to a boring and sterile existence. We have emotional responses. We just, if we keep them under control and keep an eye on them. Um. We have this. Uh, I just want to keep emphasizing presuppositions. Yeah. As evolutionists will discard data because it does not fit them. Uh, vestigial organs, um, they were leftovers from evolution. Oh, now we know what they are for. Yeah. Or junk DNA. Well, that's because they don't know what that's for, and so they're saying it's junk. Uh, that's all based on the presuppositions. Now, many of the things Nathan mentioned fit a creation model far better than the uniformitarian models, with less need for embarrassment and excuses. Ken Ham brought it home to me that not only is it the interpretation of data that's at issue, but we have biases, and the fallacious assertion that fossils prove evolution or that the creationist belief that fossils are billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth those are interpretations of data. Yeah. I have said before that evolutionists do not do their homework, and yet they tell us what we believe. I lay charge to the old earthers as well that they have not bothered to seriously consider flood geology models. Creationist scientists have theories and models like any other scientists, as we were discussing before. And I like the Mount St. Helens, how that has a basically a mini Grand Canyon. And everything's verified. The rock layers that look like the ones in the Grand Canyon, which the faithful proclaim were laid down over millions of years, some of those were laid down in minutes or even seconds. Yeah. So how do we use current changing trends of science to determine our understanding of scriptures? Because there's yet another change for uh, scientific interpretations between Mount St. Helens and the Grand Canyon. Yeah, it's very good. Well, so let's shift gears then uh, and talk about additional reasons to believe in a young earth. Uh, you know, we're all on the same page that it's scripture that's the authority to which we subject our interpretation of the scientific data. But 
but let's not give people the impression that that that's the only reason that we think young earth creationism creationism is true. Uh, We also happen to think that what the scripture says about the age of the earth is supported by evidence found in the material world. Again, again, I'm going to turn mostly to Nathan on these, but Bob, please, you know, do chime in if you have some thoughts. Nathan, can you give us some uh, scientific evidence that you think supports what we deduce from the pages of scripture? Absolutely. And First of all, I would reiterate that if the Bible, interpreted according to its own authority, teaches a young earth, that should be sufficient for us to believe in a young earth. We don't need the scientific evidence. The, you know, the, the evidence is the icing on the cake, as far as we're concerned. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going to see that the scientific data properly interpreted also teaches a young earth. Most of the data that I'm going to cite today comes from the field of geology, and my main source for that data is the same one I mentioned earlier when I talked about presuppositions, uh, or excuse me, assumptions with the radiometric uh, dating uh, techniques. Um, And this is The Young Earth by John Morris. Uh, So I'm going to list, first of all, what we observe, and for each observation we'll compare to see which, which story of Earth's history, old Earth or young Earth, makes the best sense of that data. Okay. Uh, so, so the first one is undisturbed structure within rock layers, uh, also known as bioturbation. When we observe the geologic column, which is the stack of rock layers under the soil of the Earth, we see that the internal structure of that sediment within those layers is largely intact. Now, why is that significant? Well, we've observed that even in newly formed deposits, layers formed by hurricanes, volcanoes, etc., the internal structure of those layers is destroyed quickly by things that live in the soil. Hmm. And this, this is the case with any exposed layer, whether above the water or submerged under the water. Within just a few years, things like tree roots, burrowing animals, worms, clams, they render the internal structure of even a newly formed layer virtually unrecognizable. Now, according to older thinking, each of those layers within the Grand Canyon was the exposed top surface for millions of years, both above and below the water. Now, let's think logically. If it only takes a few years for life to destroy the internal structure of an exposed layer, what would we expect excuse me, would we expect to see any internal structure in a layer that was exposed to the surface for millions of years? (laughs) Should we believe that things lived within that soil for millions of years without leaving any evidence of them having been there? Doesn't it make better sense of what we see to say that those layers were laid down quickly so that living things didn't have an opportunity to disturb them? Mm -hmm. What we observe in this case is exactly what we would have excuse me, what would have occurred in a global flood, which is the rapid deposition of many fossil-bearing layers within a short period of time. Hey, hey Nathan, before you go on, I'm, I'm curious, do we see that kind of uh, uh, bio, I think you call it bioturbation? Bioturbation, yeah. Do, 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 we, do we see that in the layers at the top of the geologic record around the Grand Canyon? Well, I think the answer, now I haven't observed it personally, but I think the answer is yes. Um, the, the, the top exposed layer is the one that, that animals burrow in and that plants have their tree roots in. Uh, now, obviously, some places, you know, in the Grand Canyon, things aren't going to grow as um, readily as, you know, it's kind of out in the desert, isn't it? But uh, other places, 
they'll grow more readily. But even in, even there, you'll see uh, within those layers, uh, the very top layer to answer that question, you see evidence of these living things, and they at least the top part of that layer, that the structure of that, according to my understanding, uh, does not remain intact. Uh, one um, example that uh, John Morris gave in his book is uh, a hurricane came, and I, I just forget what the location was, but it came and uh, basically deposited a, a series of layers um, in the Gulf of Mexico, somewhere down there. Uh, and within a few years, they went down there and the internal structure of those layer of the at least the top layer was all but decimated you know because things came and started burrowing in there plants started growing um the, the structure wasn't wasn't there anymore so i think the answer is uh yeah the top layer uh exhibits evidence of uh living things in it the layers below it don't uh, that's very good a few things maybe uh and but mostly dead things right, right yeah okay so what's what's the well actually first bob okay. did, did did you have any thoughts on uh on this point before we move on to the next one no i don't have anything to add to this okay uh so your next one nathan what's the next one after uh undisturbed structure within rock layers okay another undisturbed here is undisturbed bedding planes so normally in the geologic column the boundary we observe between rock layers is a flat surface that extends for thousands of square miles now why is that significant well even after just thousands of years uplifting and erosion deforms a flat surface mm. according to modern geology the time between the deposition of these layers meaning the time that they were laid down um, is hundreds of thousands to millions of years. So should we believe that millions of years of uplifting of uplifting and erosion produced a perfectly flat surface? <laughs> Probably or, not. No. Or does it make more sense to say that those layers were deposited quickly enough that there wasn't enough time for erosion to take place? That seems a little more reasonable to me. Um, again, what we have observed there is exactly what we would expect to see had a global flood taken place in the way that the Bible describes it, which is the rapid deposition of many fossil-bearing layers within a short period of time. Yeah. Okay, what else do you have for us? All right, polystrate fossils. Um, this is one that Bob wanted to make sure I included. Um, and I, I also think it's very powerful. Uh, it's very common to find fossilized remains of living things that extend or protrude through more than one rock layer, sometimes through several layers at once. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, according to modern geology, these layers that share the same fossil are separated in time from one another by hundreds of thousands to millions of years. Well, if that were true, how could a fossil be buried in both layers at once? Is it reasonable to believe that a dead tree trunk was stuck upright in the top of one layer and the exposed portion remained intact for hundreds of thousands of years until it was gradually buried uh, <laughs> by the next layer? Right. Or does it make more sense to say that those layers were deposited quickly enough so that the dead upright tree trunk didn't have time to disintegrate between the deposition of the one layer and the other? Again, what we observe is exactly what we would expect to see had a global flood taken place in the way that the Bible describes it the rapid deposition of many fossil-bearing layers within a short period of time. 
Yeah, and I'd like to add that many of those trees that you're talking about that have been found uh, spanning multiple layers of rock are upside down. So I'd like to I'd like to know how <laughs> uh, how the tree ends up buried upside down in one rock layer, but the but at the bottom of it, sticking up out of the uh, into the exposed air, remains intact for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, it, it, it it's yeah. ridiculous, Bob. I mean, just yeah. in case, because Nathan said that this is one that you would hope he would include. Was there anything that you wanted to add to this issue of polystrate fossils? No, I'm just glad that he did it, and uh, I know I've come across some evolutionists that have said. Oh, we've got explanations for that. Yeah, they went to the lameexcuses.com site and dredged up stuff because um, there's plenty of excuses, but for valid um, explanations for some of the things that creationists and catastrophists have raised, uh, they don't do a very good job. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, well, come on. By the way. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I I was going to add some... um um, and this again from John Morris. He, he states that a lot of modern geologists have actually be, be, become what what they call neo-catastrophists. Hmm. And it's evidence like this that makes them scratch their head and say, you know what? Well, we know at least some layers were laid down within short periods of time, you know, of other layers. Because how could this kind of thing happen? But then the rational rationalization becomes, well, we had these two layers that were laid down quickly, but then the rest were gradual depositions. Yeah. Um, so uh, what that does, though, is it also shows you how powerful the human imagination is when it wants <laughs> to escape a conclusion that it doesn't want to accept. Yeah. Um, and that is that, you know, the, the whole basis for your believing uh, that the geologic column is a record of billions of years is really based on a whole uh, false way of thinking. Yeah. So, anyway, um, okay, number four, if you're ready. Um, soft sediment deformation, and I have two kinds of this. The first is a bending kind of deformation. The Grand Canyon is carved through a raised plateau comprised of a formation of about 10 layers. Uh, a formation, by the way, is uh, just... <clears throat> a structure that includes a whole bunch of different layers. So you might have a, a bunch of layers that are laid down in one orientation, and then you have another bunch of layers on top of that or that, you know, that are slightly angled to it or whatever. So each of those things, uh, uh, groups of layers, are, would, according to my understanding anyway, be okay. a formation. Um, at some point in the past, this entire formation was severely bent as the portion that now comprises the plateau was raised upward a distance of about a mile into its present position. Yet even in the lowest layer of this formation, there are no elongated sand grains or broken cement crystals that would indicate the bending or breaking of brittle, hardened rock. Well, why is that significant? Well, according to standard geology, the lowest layer of this formation was 480 million years old at the time that it was bent. So, is it reasonable to believe that 480 million year old rock would bend almost 90 degrees without breaking and without any indication of it having been in a hard, brittle condition at the time? Or does it make more sense to believe that the layer was in a soft, unhardened condition at the time of bending because it had been recently deposited and it hardened after it was bent? And by the way, uh, broken record again. That's what a global flood model predicts, that 
deposition of layers happens rapidly in a short period of time. And in this case, you can see the global tectonic upheaval uh, that, that occurred after the flood, you know, the, the upraising of that plateau um, into its present position. Yeah. They say, by the way, that, that the upper and lower portions of that formation are, I think, about a mile distant from each other, um, in elevation, that is. Um, so you had the top part raised up a mile above the bottom part. And so you can see there, if you're trying to visualize how the um, what these layers would have done, they would have bent almost 90 degrees in that kind of action there. Uh, yeah, and it is very interesting. And before you get on to the other example of this kind of sediment deformation, I just wanted to point out that, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, we're not dealing only with examples where the strata is bent 90 degrees, presumably hundreds of millions of years after hardening without breaking. We have examples where layers are folded 180 degrees on top of each other and then 180 degrees back, kind of like taking a, a piece of paper and having a, your hands on either end and pushing them together. It's going to fold into kind of like a, an, an S pattern. And we see examples like that where the where the strata is going along and then it does a 180 and goes the other direction and does another 180 hmm. back in the direction it was going, all while not breaking at all. I mean, it, Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that just can't happen with rock layers that are millions of years old. Right. Yeah. So, so what's the other example of uh, soft sediment deformation? Okay, um, clastic dikes. Uh, and this is an, the last one was an, a bending kind of, of deformation. This is an extrusion. Uh, clastic dikes are formed when soft, unhardened sediment is squeezed or extruded through a crack in an overlying layer. Hmm. And I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this. Um, and here's what I came up with. So let's see if this works. <laughs> Imagine you have an in-ground swimming pool. And inside that swimming pool is a layer several feet thick of soft, unhardened sheetrock compound. You know, the stuff that you use to spackle your walls. <clears throat> that soft kind of material. Mm -hmm. um, a layer several feet thick of that. But it's, uh, it's wet. It has not hardened. Okay. Over the top of that, you pour a thick layer of quick-hardening concrete. A few hours later, the condition is one in which the top layer has hardened, but the soft, uh, excuse me, the bottom layer is still soft. Um, kind of visualize this now. Um, now imagine there is an earthquake that causes the top layer to crack in several places, and the pressure from the weight of the overlying layer causes the compound from the lower soft layer to ooze, if you will, up through the cracks in the hardened top layer and even protrude through it in places. Mm. Um, now, have I just completely... <laughs> no, no, no. I, it's fascinating. I'm picturing this in my head very okay. vividly. Okay, good. Good. And you can see how this soft material will come up through these channels in the, in the overlying hard layer that cracked um, and even come up through it and cause like a vertical structure to, that protrudes above the layer. Can you kind of visualize that? Yeah. Okay, good. Th those would be like the clastic dikes. That would be equivalent to, to those. Now, after a few days or weeks, the whole thing, including the compound, has hardened. And uh, so I'm saying clastic dikes are very similar to the cracks in that overlying layer of concrete through which the underlying material was pushed. Now, obviously... In order for those dikes to form, the underlying sandstone layer has to be in a soft sediment condition at the time the crack in the overlying layer occurred. And how is that pertinent to our discussion of, of the age of the Earth? Well, 
According to standard geology, the underlying sandstone layers had hundreds of millions of years to heart before the overlying granite layer even began to form on top of them, mm. much less was cracked on top of them. So is it reasonable to believe that sandstone, hundreds of millions of years old, could be in a condition where it can be squeezed like toothpaste? <laughs> Or does it make more sense to believe that the soft layer underneath was squeezed in this way because it had been formed within a short period of time before that overlying layer and hadn't had enough time yet to fully harden? Yeah. Well, that's what we would expect to see if a global flood had occurred in the way that the Bible describes it, and that is the rapid deposition of many layers within a short period of time. Of course, some hardening more quickly than others. And some, in some cases, the top layer hardening more quickly than the bottom layer. And, and then followed by a global tectonic upheaval. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So how about, how about right. the, the, the last one? The, the last, one more, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, C14, uh, carbon-14 content. This final one is not a geological feature. But I wanted to use it anyway, since I think it poses a very interesting and unanswered question. Um, my source for this is Thousands Not Billions by Dr. Don D. Young. Um, highly recommend it, by the way. Carbon-14 is an isotope or form of the element carbon. And living things, such as plants and animals, absorb and ingest C-14 atoms while they are living. But when they die, they no longer accumulate it. And at that time, the C14 content begins to decrease um, through the process of uh, decay, radioactive decay, kind of like we talked about in uh, uh, previously in the age of rocks and things like that. Right. Uh, by the way, parenthetically, something that a lot of people uh, think is that carbon-14 is useful in dating um, things that are millions of years old, but... I'm sure the three of us at least know that that's not true at all. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you, you can't date something that's over a certain age that's really more like 100,000 years old, usually even less than that using our current technology. But uh, one interesting thing about C14 is that it has a short half-life, excuse me, half-life of 5,730 years. Well, how does that pertain to the age of the Earth? In our current technology, we can't, uh, detect any level of carbon-14 in organic materials that are more than 100,000 years old. So coal beds that are thought to be 300,000 years old and diamonds thought to be millions, even billions of years old, should register zero C14, right? That's right. You know, diamonds and uh, coal beds should register zero C14, right? Because they're dated at 300,000 years old for the coal beds and diamonds. I mean, you've probably heard of diamonds being billion, millions and billions of years old. You know, they say it takes that many years for a diamond to form. Mm. Uh, of course, we know we can make one very quickly uh, <laughs> if the conditions are right. But um, <clears throat> recent studies by the Rate Research Team, as documented in de Young's book, have yielded significant C14 content in both coal beds and in diamonds. Now, why would there be an abundance of C14 in deeply buried organic materials that we've been led to believe are millions, even billions of years old? You know, it's funny that you asked that question because the only thing I could think of if we, if we wanted to go that route would be to suggest that, uh, that the rate of decay uh, is variable. 
But as soon as we allow for that possibility, mm-hmm. what does that do to radiometric dating? Exactly. That it it undercuts the foundation of, of uniformitarianism. Yeah. And we could we could look at similar evidence from other fields. Astronomy, for instance, fascinating uh, evidence there that, uh, that you know the story we've been told is not the, the story that's correct. Um, but I think we've given some good examples. I hope anyway uh, of how the young Earth and global flood position makes better sense of the data that we see than one which accommodates millions and billions of years. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, well, well, we're starting to sort of uh, close in on the uh, on the end of our discussion. We've talked a lot about the authority of Scripture, biblical and scientific evidence in support of a young earth. We've responded to some of the challenges and tactics of critics of our position. But before we wrap up, um, if, if, we, if we don't mind spending just a couple more minutes, I, I did want to pick your minds to see what you think about the intelligent design movement. And, um, you know, I, I've got mixed feelings, but I'd like to see what you think. Uh, Bob, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on the intelligent design movement? Well, I have to level with you. I'm a bit ambivalent on it. Uh, even though the fundamentalist evolutionists wave off ID and creationists as if there were no scientists in either and they have not contributed to scientific thought, they're being deliberately misleading and refuse to examine the evidence. Yeah. My problem comes in because I am a biblical creationist. ICR and AIG do not like the ID groups, and ID groups say they're not... They're only about the science, not about apologetics. I can see that, but I can also see the point that there is no neutral ground, and the unregenerate human mind is expected to honestly weigh the evidence and see fit to choose God as if God is saying, pick me, pick me. Yeah. I'm not in this to win arguments. The purpose is to win souls. People have left the faith because they have had honest questions and intellectual dilemmas that have not been answered, and I'm willing to use research from ID to help answer people. And back again, if someone is not willing to accept the evidence presented, they will always have a rescuing device and excuses. I learned from Ray Comfort's School of Biblical Evangelism that we should never leave the Word of God out of an actual witnessing situation because... We can have an intellectual convert, a theist or a deist when we're done, but they're still spiritually dead. Perhaps this comes down to the fact that I am still refining my own approach and even my beliefs about how to go about creation evangelism. As I said earlier, I took a two-pronged approach when I was presenting it in churches that evolution fails in both scientific and scriptural ways. However, that doesn't mean fideism and blind faith and even presuppositionalists will use evidence. Mm, okay. So I'll give you a definite maybe. <laughs> <laughs> sure. What, what about you, Nathan? What are your thoughts on ID? Yeah, um, similar to Bob, I think. Uh, I think people associated with the intelligent design movement have done some really great work in demonstrating the untenable nature of naturalism as it relates to origins. And I wouldn't hesitate to cite their work in my arguments for intelligent designer. Um, at the same time, however, I want to be careful as well to, to place the way I use their work in the larger context of the objective that we're trying to accomplish. Uh, the objective of the ID movement is to combat naturalistic theories of origins, to show, or at least that's one of their objectives, you know, to show that the universe is not a product of blind chance, 
but that there is an intelligent creator behind it. But the ID movement does not exist to promote a particular faith or reveal a particular God. But as believers in Christ, we are commissioned to do that, to spread a particular faith and reveal a particular God. Our desire is not only to see people renounce their atheism, but to see them come to faith in Christ and to know him not only as creator, but as redeemer. And just to be clear, I think the objective of the ID movement, or, or one of their other objectives, to transform culture through the knowledge of an intelligent designer, is a noble one. But I would emphasize regarding that, that the kind of change that produces long-lasting results in the culture is one that is a product of an internal transformation. And just the belief in the existence of an intelligent creator is insufficient to affect that kind of change. Yeah. So, as useful as I might find the arguments of the intelligent design movement, as great as I think they are to, to have in your uh, creationist tool belt, because they are tremendously effective. I mean, look at the work of uh, Michael Behe, for instance, or Behe, however you pronounce it, and you know, Darwin's Black Box. That book... Um, I just couldn't say enough about it, but uh, but there's also a, a bunch of other people in that movement. You know, William Dembski and Stephen Meyer, and uh, I know I'm going to miss some of the big names there, but uh, uh, Philip Johnson is, is another name there. Um, as useful as those things are, I think it would be dangerous to fixate on them to the exclusion of God's special revelation, including the knowledge of the true God and the message of the gospel of salvation. Yeah, <clears throat> very well said. I definitely agree. Um, you know, I'll just add my own thoughts too, which is just that I don't actually think the ID movement goes far enough because uh, I think that many of the people within the movement still do believe in an old earth. Many of them believe in, in an evolution of sorts, even if it's not uh, unguided in a neo-Darwinian neo sense. Um, and so I think that actually, again, they've done some tremendous work, as you pointed out. But nevertheless, I don't think they've gone enough in uh, re-examining their own underlying presuppositions that lead them to affirm an old earth and evolution of a sort. So, um, yeah, I think that their, their work should be treated for the purpose in which serves a purpose, which is to get people rethinking certain things, but it's never going to lead them to uh, to uh, a faith in Christ, and it's not necessarily going to take them take people far enough in examining their own presuppositions. Um, well, let's begin to wrap up. I want to start by giving each of you an opportunity to, to recommend some resources to those who may want to further research the case uh, for a young earth. Bob, let's start with you. Where, where would you point our listeners to? And, and just uh, just to be clear, I'll, I'll include links to any resources that you guys point out in, in my show notes. Let me think. Oh, I know. How about PiltdownSuperman.com? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not just because it's something that I built, but I set the site up to be a resource. It's full of links to other good resources. The links page has many biblical creation sites and some ID sites. And the articles that I've cited are from various sources. So hopefully people will investigate those. They'll go and read the, the current article on from creation.com or Answers in Genesis, Institute for Creation Research, or any of several others that I have in there. Hopefully they'll follow those and keep on going, do a little bit of rabbit trail and serious investigation. Okay. Uh, what about you, Nathan? I think that everything that I was going to recommend either 
either I or you or Bob has already made mention of, but I, I just I'll just list them again. Of course, the Young Earth by John Morris that I cited several times in this discussion. Uh, we talked about evidence is a great general overview of several different elements of young earth creationism. Uh, also, Don DeYoung's Thousands Not Billions is a great treatise on the uh, radioisotope dating techniques. It's just slightly more technical, but if you're into that kind of thing. Um, if you want to read a fascinating theory on the perceived problem of distant starlight, the, the one that we had made mention of there, Starlight and Time, and Russell Humphreys is the author, uh, and if you have specific questions or objections to anything within Young Earth creationism, there are two specific organizations that I have that have great websites for answering questions. Uh, and these are one, and I list them because they've been very helpful for me. And Answers in Genesis and Institute for Creation Research. So www.answersingenesis.org or www.icr.org. Uh, in one or both of those, you will probably find the answer to your specific question. Awesome. Those are all really good resources. And the last thing that I want to do, something I do in just about every episode where I'm interviewing people, is uh, give you guys an opportunity to give sort of a, a parting message. Um, Bob, we've, we've talked about a lot of different things. What would you most like to see our listeners take away from our discussion today? What, what sort of parting message would you like to leave them with? One is for apologists to not feel uh, panicked and restricted. We can be free to admit that we don't know some things. If we start bluffing our way out of, out of it, we're, we're going to lose respect. But the Bible is true from the beginning, and the evidence supports this claim if people bother to honestly examine it. The Bible is our foundation, and the foundations of most of our essential doctrines can be traced back to Genesis. We need to be strengthening our foundations and our commitment to them so we will better be better equipped to deal with other issues like abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, and other issues. To say that we can trust the New Testament but not Genesis is not only sending a mixed message to people, but undermining the gospel and the authority of the word. Look for references to the first chapters of Genesis in the New Testament. People mention Peter's sermon in Acts 2 as a model for us. The problem is Peter's listeners were theistic Jews. In Acts 17, Paul was preaching to evolutionist Greeks and went back to creation. He didn't just assume that they knew who God was because he had to go to the unknown God. We're in a rather pagan society even now and are dominated with evolutionary propaganda. Christians need to learn about creation evangelism and to speak the language of the people who do not understand about sin and repentance. That is, if we truly care about fulfilling the Great Commission and the condition, we have to deal with the condition of the lost. As for me, I'm just a guy. Um, but I've used good resources. There are many good books and the Internet. So... Anyone can learn and grow and when growing in knowledge of the word and knowledge of creation, uh, anyone can do this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not only for uh, erudites and ivory towers, as I often like to say. Uh, what about you, Nathan? What's your parting message to leave our listeners with? As I've attempted to demonstrate, and I, as I think um, our discussion here is borne out, 
The Old Earth creation position subjects the interpretation of the scriptures to an extra-biblical authority. Yet not only that, uh, that authority is revealed to be an unsubstantiated assumption, even from a scientific perspective. Now, if we're willing to adopt this authority into our biblical hermeneutic, what is preventing us from using other authorities to interpret the Bible? The authorities in science today teach a variation of Darwin's original descent with modification theory, which is an idea that many of us believe to be in conflict with the creation account in Genesis. But what is stopping us from interpreting Genesis in light of that particular interpretation of general revelation? Likewise, many authorities in science indicate that homosexual behavior in animals is normal. Why not reinterpret Romans 1 in light of that general revelation or I should say interpretation of general revelation, to view a homosexual lifestyle style as normal. This is not hypothetical. It is now permissible within the PCUSA, which is the mainline Presbyterian church, to ordain an openly practicing gay or lesbian minister. By the way, the PCUSA is only the most recent in a growing number of denominations that are doing this. Yeah. How did we get here? I submit to you that it's happened through a pattern of years, decades, even centuries of compromise regarding the authority of God's word. Now, I'm not saying that old earth thinking always leads to homosexual ministers, but I believe that there is a common cause between the two. Both of those are effects of a basic unbelief in the authority of the Bible and the willingness to subject its interpretation to the authority of human opinion. And that is what has me concerned about the issue of the age of the earth. If we are willing to interpret the Bible according to extra-biblical authority in a relatively inconsequential matter like the age of the earth, maybe later we're willing to do it with regard to matters of larger consequence. Maybe not tomorrow, or even a year from now. The effects of a compromising attitude are not always apparent in the short term. The, the PCUSA didn't get where they are now overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, and just one last thing. Um, Jesus said to Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And that's from John 3.12. Now, I hasten to say, well, I'm aware that, I'm aware that the context here is not the age of the earth, um, so lest someone come and say, now look, <laughs> you know, you're misquoting that. Um, but look, the principle behind that, I think, does apply to this issue. And... Uh, if we don't believe God when he said he created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, why should we believe what he has said about the sanctity of life or marriage or about Christ being the only means of salvation? What hope do we have of eternal life? God is calling us to confess and repent, not of belief in an old earth, but of our unbelief in his revealed word. Very well said. <clears throat> All right. Well, I want to uh, thank you both for your time. Uh, thank you, first of all, Bob, for your for your uh, time spent with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, glad to be here. And and thank you as well, Nathan, for uh, for your time. I, I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me. It's been a great discussion, Chris. Thank you. All right, I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. Uh, next up on the show will be an interview with Kenneth Gentry to discuss preterism and the book of Revelation. So I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then. Mm -hmm.